everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, it's Jen Hatmaker, your host on the For the Love podcast. Welcome, welcome. We are in the middle of a dynamic series called For the Love of Books. I honestly can't believe it took me one year to do For the Love of Books, my favorite subject. So we are talking to writers of really all stripes, fiction, nonfiction, kids. It's been so fun to learn about what makes writers tick and how they go from an idea in their head to holding a finished book in their hands. So listen, you are going to be so delighted that you decided to have a listen to this episode because our next guest is so great, you guys. I I just had the best hour talking to him. He is a prolific, brilliant writer that you and your kids will positively want to know about if you don't already, and you probably do. So I'm so glad to welcome today Kwame Alexander. Kwame is a poet, an educator. He is the New York Times bestselling author of 28 books including his Newbery-winning middle-grade novel, The Crossover, his National Book Award-nominated novel, Booked, along with tons of other books for children, for teens, and for young adults. And so besides just being an amazing award-winning writer, Kwame is also a regular contributor to NPR's Morning Edition, and he is, he's literally received like just all the awards. I mean, Coretta Scott King Author Honor Book, Lee Bennett Hopkins Poetry Prize, um, 2017 Pat Conroy Legacy Award, and he has had three NAACP Image Award nominations. I mean, he's the real deal. I can't wait for you to hear him talk about how he thinks about poetry and how it can change the world and be used to inspire young people all around the world. Um, he's also the founder of Versify, which is a new imprint uh, that we're going to talk about. Um, on top of all this, Kwame is married to his lovely wife, Stephanie, and I'm not joking when I tell you, he wooed her by writing her a poem a day, every day, for a year. So do you see what I'm getting at here? (laughs) He's a dad to two daughters. You're going to love this guy, and you're going to love his work. He is unique, and he is original, and what he does is really extraordinary. And um, your kids will love what he is putting out into the world. We'll have everything linked over. Um, on my website at jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab. So we'll link to his books and his sites and his talks. He has an amazing TED talk that we're going to talk about too. So anyhow, I'm thrilled to introduce him to you if you don't already know him and you are going to enjoy him. You're going to want him to be your friend and you're for sure going to want to follow him everywhere. So guys, help me welcome Kwame Alexander. Okay. So Kwame Alexander, welcome to the For the Love podcast. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Listen, I've just, I've been paying attention to you for a long time and I think your work is so special and it's so interesting and you are so original and unique. And so I'm really excited for my listeners to, some of them are going to meet you for the first time today and they're going to be so glad that they did. So do you know, I don't even know if you know this, but, um, I was also speaking at, the Festival of Faith and Writing this year where you were keynoting. Oh, really? Yeah, I was up there. I came in a day after you and I was so mad that I missed your talk. Um, And I I told the event coordinators, I'm like, 
I blew it. I mean, I just absolutely <laughs> blew it. <laughs> did you get stuck at that conference like I did? No, I didn't. I had to get in and out because I was in the middle of a book tour on a bus, 30 cities, 32 oh, days. That's an intense tour. Did it you was, say 30? What'd you say? It was 30. It was 32 cities in about 30 days. Dang. And oh we had a we had a tour bus and it was it was a tour bus that was wrapped in the cover of Rebound. We had four bunk beds, a living room, a kitchen, oh a master bedroom, um two bathrooms, a shower, and and seven <laughs> flat screen TVs. <laughs> like, what do you need that for? So we were on the road <laughs> for the entire month of April, and it was pretty incredible. That's fun. You, your whole family? No, no. My family, like I brought my daughter and wife and, and some of my daughter's friends, their 10-year-olds, on the bus oh for about gosh, four awesome. days. <laughs> and they were like mini rock stars. Oh, but for the duration of the tour, it was me. It was Randy who... Randy usually performs with me. He's a guitarist and yep. he travels with me to schools. And it was our tour manager. So it was three of us and the drivers. It's an adventure. It's a wonderful adventure. Into yeah. Sort of um, and uncovering and discovering the beauty between the pages of a book. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I do a bus tour um, with my partner, Nicole Norderman, and our crew. We have a, a tour that we run in the fall and the spring, and it's kind of a blast. I mean, wow. I wouldn't want to do it for much longer than a month because right. um, the bus gets a little cramped. Uh, but we put nine people on the bus, and it is shenanigans. Oh, my goodness. Shenanigans. I can't I, even. I don't even want to fly anymore. It's like whenever I tour, <laughs> I just want buses now from now on. That's my I'm life. with you. That was my <laughs> first time to ever do it. And I'm like, I don't ever want to see an airport for the rest of my life. Right. And exactly. Like, terrible, terrible. This is embarrassing. Gosh, we haven't even gotten into my, a million questions for you. But on the very, <laughs> my friend Nicole is an artist. She's a musician. She's been on lots of bus tours. So she's telling me all of what's amazing about it. And, and she's like, you know, you're in your little bed cave and it's pitch black and there's kind of the hum of the road and you right. sleep good. Right. You sleep good. And it's dark and you can't see anything. You know, you pull the curtain. And she's like, you know, when I'm on bus tour, I'll sleep until 8.30 or 9 o'clock. She's telling me this the night before we leave for tour. And I'm right. like, come on. I'm like, I'm not going to sleep till 9 o'clock. I'm not in college. I mean, that is ridiculous. And so the first morning that we get to where we're going, and we've been on the bus all night long sleeping. I mean, I think it's the middle of the night. And I don't know what time it is. I can't hear anything. I have earplugs in. And I look at my phone. <laughs> it is 11 a.m. <laughs> 11. The whole bus is empty. My whole team is in the hotel. And I look at my phone. I've turned it off. There's all these texts. We're inside when you wake up. <laughs> so anyway, I'm with you on the bus. That's I must have legit. taken about three naps a day, Jen, on the bus. <laughs> Like I was, yes. I had a, I had events in the morning. I take a nap, events in the afternoon, yeah. take a nap, have to do a little reception, then a event at night, <laughs> and then sleep on the way to the hotel, it's and amazing. I was good to go. It's amazing. I'm, I can never go backwards. Um, so listen, I've I've told our listeners a little bit about you and your background, but we do need to talk first about your style because um, you just need to tell us how many of those awesome pairs of glasses do you have and where do you get them? And it's your signature move. And I'm all the way here for it. I love it. I love your glasses. Thank you, Jen. You know, the thing about it is I've been thinking of, about getting LASIK 
And oh, no. But the only issue is then I won't be able to wear my glasses. No, it's your move. It's my I love my glasses. I so I I get I got some glasses from this really cool spot in Soho in New York. Um they were really expensive, but I I was like I got to I got to splurge cuz I love these glasses. <laughs> I got I was in Shanghai on tour and I was in like the marketplace, you know, negotiating and doing sure. my thing cuz I love haggling. Sure. Um and I saw this pair of white framed glasses and I was like I got to get these and they just yeah. so cool and I and, yep. and and the guy was like it's $10. And I was like what? <laughs> He's like, it's $10. He said, if you want prescription, it's 20. (laughs) How long does prescription take? He says, "Uh, about 20 minutes. Oh my God. So I bought those and I, (laughs) I, I I wore those for like a year or two, man. I'm a glasses. Like that's my thing, Jen. That's my, it is. And I forbid you to get LASIKs. I mean, I just, I just forbid it. it. I just, we need to see those glasses. They're amazing. And you look awesome in them. So let me ask you this. I don't know if you have this in front of you, um, but I want everyone listening to have a real sense of the way that you write if they've not been familiar with your style. So if you don't mind, I wonder if you could read for my listeners. Something? Yeah. And I've got a request if you've got it near you. I wonder... If you could read page three of the crossover, it's the section called dribbling and it is so, so good. Dribbling at the top of the key. I'm moving and grooving, popping and rocking. Why you bumping? Why you locking? Man, take this thumping. Be careful though. Cause now I'm crunking, Chris crossing, flossing, flipping, and my dipping will leave you slipping on the floor while I swoop in to the finish with a fierce finger roll straight in the hole. Swoosh. <laughs> It's so, and it's written like the, the literary devices you use are so compelling. It's so interesting. And I'm just convinced that if more books were written this way, kind of in your fresh style, that more kids would not only read poetry, but just read period. Um, because you're capturing their imaginations in such a, a new and in a unique way. I wonder are you are you writing the books that you wanted to read when you were a kid? Absolutely. I'm writing yeah. like me and my friends talked. I'm writing like I hear kids talk and I'm trying to use rhythm, repetition, rhyme, alliteration, you know, visual um like making sure the words jump off the page so that yeah. so that the words can come alive for kids cuz I that's what I needed to happen for me when I was a kid nobody was giving me books that I was interested in or excited about mm. and yet they said I was reluctant it wasn't that I was reluctant I just wasn't interested and so yes. how do you you know and so I've always I've spent my career trying to write you know you know really good stuff but trying to write interesting you know, what's going to be compelling to me, ultimately, I think, at the very least, stands a chance of being compelling and interesting to you, the reader. Your instincts are right. Um, and, you know, you come from a family of artists. You've got a photographer, a model, a musician in the family. Tell us a little bit about um, about growing up in your house. Like, where do you fall in the line of siblings? And were you kind of inspired by their abilities and your parents and um, were you the kid who stayed in your room for hours at a time to create? Were you always creative? 
No, I was I was the kid who created in life. Like it wasn't I was living a a, a life that was again interesting. And we grew up in a house where our parents surrounded us with books. Hmm. I was the oldest. And so, you know, I was the one who had to read my father's dissertations. I was the one who had to, you know, sit down and have these conversations and discussions with my with my father around different literary topics. And mm-hmm. I loathe that. I did not did you? like, I mean, come on, what, what 12 year old wants to have to read, you know, your father's PhD dissertation? None. Exactly. <laughs> you know, when my, when my father showed up as my social studies substitute teacher one day, like that was horrible. My dad, <laughs> my dad was the headmaster of my school. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, those were, those were sort of the way we grew up. We grew up immersed in language and literature. My mother, you know, my father would have, may have been more functional with his um, treatment of literature and, and academics. My mother was more fun. She told us mm. stories. She sang us songs. So we had this really interesting balance of, of words as being powerful and words as being something you have to respect and words as being fun and exciting mm. and cool. And so we had this really interesting balance. And I think all of us grew up with that, understanding how to, one, use our words, Two, how to lift our voices about the things that matter to us. And three, to have confidence, you know, to walk through life feeling like we were confident. That stuff came, you know, through from the pages of a book. It came from developing an imagination of what's possible and and knowing our place in the world. That came from literature that we were exposed to from from Dr. Seuss. You know, yeah. as a two-year-old, Fox and Sucks, sure. you know, to, to, to my dad's dissertations, to, to the book that sort of changed my life and made me realize that books were cool as a, as a middle school student. And that was Muhammad Ali's autobiography. Oh, yeah. Um, to the love poems I wrote, you know, yeah. in college and after college. Like, I have a love affair with words. I know their mm-hmm. power. I, I know their joy. And I think all of my siblings sort of got that as well and, and decided to express it in, in different ways. I love this. and I, I like hearing it as a mom and I bet my listeners do too, because there's just something very powerful and um, irreplaceable to just raise our kids in homes where books are precious, where stories are read, where literature matters, um, where we read a lot and they see us reading and we're reading to them. And so much of that is kind of caught and not taught, I think. Um, and, and it is true that uh, when you grow up in a literature rich home, um, you kind of experience the magic and the power of words in a way that you really just can't force um, in any other capacity. I, I, I read that you wrote your first poem when you were 12. Um, and I wonder <laughs> if you could tell us the title. And if you dare, could you speak it aloud to us? I gave it to my mother on Mother's Day when I was 12. Dear Mommy, I hate Mother's Day. Because in my heart, every day is Mother's Day and I love you, dear mommy. Oh. <laughs> Quit it. That, that was corny. Make sure you edit that part out, Jen. I will not edit it out. <laughs> I will not. Oh, my gosh. That was, that was, that was my first. Crazy. That was my, for, my foray into poetry. And the thing is, she thought oh, it was wonderful. Sweet. She cried. She of course she it. did. So, you know, it was a horrible poem. But the idea is that poetry can have this sort of immediate emotional sort of connection with us um, as readers, as listeners, as human beings. I think that's the beauty of poetry is that it can allow us to become more human 
in that moment. So you mentioned this a second ago, but you began your poetry career with, as you mentioned, suggestive love poems, which I love. And... (laughs) Fantastic. Um, And you tell some really funny stories about that, by the way. But so how did the love poem guy um, transition a little bit into the guy who writes for teens and young adults? Well, I guess it's two things. Number one, isn't everything really, everything that's written, everything we write, isn't it ultimately about relationships? I think you can make that argument. To yourself, to to someone else, Mm. to the world to your life, to, to the things that are, I mean, I feel like it's all about love. And so Mm -hmm. I don't think, and, and then the books I write, you know, they are all in, in their own way. They're all love stories, Mm -hmm. but to sort of the second thing to, to really answer your question is how did I go from writing these love poems? Uh, lips like yours ought to be worshipped. See, I ain't never been too religious, but you can baptize me anytime. I mean, dang. So, like, how do you go from stuff <laughs> like that, I get it, like, to writing, you know, children's literature? And I think yeah. probably it happened, Jen, when my, I have two daughters. Yeah. When my oldest daughter was 15, and she said she wanted to go on a date. Uh-huh. And I thought that that, probably is something that can happen when you turn 30, (laughs) but not now. And so um, I ended up trying to, I ended up writing a poem about it to try to understand what she was going through, to try to remember what it was like to be, you know, in like or in love in high school. And so I wrote this poem for her called 10 Reasons Why Fathers Cry at Night. Hmm. One because 15-year-olds don't like park swings or long walks anymore unless you're in the mall. Two, because holding her hand is forbidden and kisses are lethal. Three, because school was fine, her day was fine, and yes, she's fine, so why is she weeping? Hmm. Four, because you want to help, but you can't read minds. Five, because she's in love and that's cute until you find his note asking her to prove it. Six, because she didn't prove it. Seven, because next week she's in love again, and this time it's real, Jen. She says her heart is heavy. Mm. Eight, because she yearns to take long walks in the park with him. Nine, because you remember the myriad woes and wonders of spring desire. And ten, because with trepidation and thrill, you watch your teenage daughter who suddenly wants to swing all by herself. Beautiful. And so writing that poem sort of put me in this sensibility of young love and remembering what it was like and, and trying to relate and understand her better and and we survived her teenage years yep and how old is she now she's 27 yeah writing that poem yeah having a teenage daughter changed my sensibilities in writing and i began to sort of identify more with writing that experience and Hmm. trying to understand it and then i had another daughter and i began writing picture books to to read to her and so having the two girls sort of, you know, um, come of age really impacted my writing. And, and I found that I enjoyed being able to connect with them through the, through the writing. So in your Ted talk, which I loved and I cried at the end. So 
for all my listeners, we'll have the link to, up to this. If you haven't seen it, you're going to want to Google it right after this. Episode. You cried. Why'd you cry? Yes. When you won the award. Oh, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you and got everybody me. else. Me too. You got me. I just, well, I, yeah, I did it. I like, I even knew the ending. I already knew you won the award. And I was like, you. It was so good. And I just, I loved the whole entire TED Talk. And so in it, you talked a little bit about the moment that you kind of found your voice and decided you were going to use it. And I think that's a really important discovery in a kid's life. And, you know, a lot of times our kids are just kind of marginalized and we don't think they have anything important to say. And we don't think their voices have value yet. And they're too young and they're too inexperienced. Um, but that has not been my, ex- that's not been my story with my kids. I have five kids, if you can imagine. Wow. Um, and they're all like teens and I've got a 20 year old and and them finding their own voices has been monumental kind of to their own development when they kind of realize like you did how powerful it is to channel your conviction into words and action. So I wonder if you can talk about that just a little bit. Yeah. Um, my parents spent a great deal of time trying to make sure that we were all equipped to move through this world, feeling confident, feeling assured, almost arrogant in our, not arrogant in the sense that someone else wasn't good, but arrogant in our own sense of who we were hmm. and, and, and not allowing the world to sort of lower our goals. You know, they were like, shoot for the sun, you know, and you will shine. When I was two years old, my dad took me to a playground at Columbia University where he was getting his doctorate and he gave me a basketball and the basketball was bigger than me. Hmm. And he had me shoot foul shots from the free throw line, which of course, it's no way I'm going to make that. Right. And there was a facilities manager at the park, the playground who came over and started lowering the goal so that I could reach it. And my dad said, no. The guy said, man, he's too small. He's not going to make that. And my dad said, he doesn't know he can't make it. Mm, wow. That's pretty powerful. Sure is. Like our kids become who we expect them to be. Mm. You know, the way the way we sort of um, prepare them to face the world is who they're going to become, I think, in many ways. Mm. Um, and so... I'm not even sure if I'm answering the question, but no, I love, it. I love find, that answer. Like finding your voice. Yeah. Like I, again, I think it goes back to the words. I think it goes back to the books. Like the, the books can do the, the, the heavy lifting for yes, us, they can. but you've got to create an environment. You've got to create a space where your, where your children feel that books are fun, that books are cool, that books can be, you know, something that they look forward to and get excited about and become engaged with. And of course, what that requires, Jen, is for that, for a kid to find that book that's going to engage and empower them. For you to help the kid find that book, you got to know the kid. That's a great point. You got to know whether you're a teacher or a parent or a librarian, you got to know that kid so that you can help guide them to that book. And, you know, I hear people all the time, you know, they try to make that a superficial thing. Well, if it's a black kid, give them a book with a black character. Yeah. If it's a white kid, give them a book with a, you know, a white character. Or, and it's, it's, it's bigger than that. Yeah. It's bigger than that. Books are mirrors and they're windows. Yeah. We got to have books, Jim, that we were able to see ourselves in, you know, physically, sure. you know, culturally, but we also got to have windows. We got to have books where we see other people 
who don't necessarily look or act or or go to church like us mm-hmm. or what have you, because it helps us become um, it helps us become more human. That's it helps right. It become does. more connected. So how do you find your voice? How do you, you know, find, you know, how do you feel that confidence, that arrogance in your place in this world? Not to, again, not to the detriment of other people, but to your own sort of um, way of being. I think I think it starts with books. I do, too. I do, too. And I, I mean, I even think about my experience as an adult reader, which is identical it's books have given me the world and books have given me perspective and books have given me empathy and books have given me stories that are not my own. Um, but that I get to peek into and all of those things, the cumulative effect I'm changed. Like I'm a different adult. I'm a different leader. I'm a different mom. I'm a different writer. And so that that is exactly the same experience that we can give our kids. And I think this is one reason why I love your unique style so much, because to your very salient point, I'm convinced there is no kid who would hate reading if they had the right book in their hands. Um, that sometimes we're just putting the wrong genre in front of them because it's the one other kids like, or it's the one that everybody else likes. But um, I have found even with my kids that if I can find the right story that captures their imagination, um, that they are all of a sudden all in. So earlier when you kind of read a little bit, that was from one of your obviously best loved books, The Crossover. Um, this is the one that won the Newbery Award that made me cry. Um, and, and listeners, if you don't know what Newbery is, Newbery is like the Oscars of children's books. It's a huge deal. Did you even know you were up for that, by the way? Because when you told the story in your TED Talk, I didn't even get the impression that you knew you were nominated. There is no nomination. Oh. You only find out if you won. There's no like letting you know you're on a list. You just You get a call at six in the morning. So you had no idea that was coming. None whatsoever. You hear oh, a lot yeah. of chatter. You, you know, sure. there's, there's rumors, there's blogs where people are doing mock Newberries and you hear a lot of that stuff, but no, there's no official nomination. So you really have no idea. That's so fascinating. And listen, the, my favorite thing about the crossover, besides just its obvious merit is its story. Um, because that book had quite a little journey before it reached the Newberry Medal. Um, and so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the path of that project. Yeah, so I started writing it in 2008. Um, an editor had, had read some of my poetry and had heard me read that particular poem about my daughter, uh, 10 Reasons Why Fathers Cry at Night. And she felt like I had a voice and she, she, she suggested that I try writing for, for young people, middle grade, in particular, a novel. Um, about basketball, which was interesting, in in verse. So she essentially gave me this idea and said, now go do it. And I did it. And between 2008 and 2013, five years, um, just constant rejections, you know, and the book started Even from her. I mean, it was her idea. It was her idea. She rejected it three times. Yeah. About 22 different rejections and certainly disappointed, um, frustrated, doubtful along the path, um, but could not give it up, just kept rewriting it because really felt good about the story and eventually just decided I was going to publish it myself. Mm-hmm. And I could literally, Jen, within one week, I had gotten a, like the 23rd email um, saying that uh, 
Houghton Mifflin loved the book and they wanted yeah. to publish it. And so it had been a five year journey, yeah. but it was so worth it. And, you know, it was, it, was it, it just, it was supposed to happen like that. I tell people all the time that it's a great metaphor for this idea that the no's are a part of life. Like you're yeah. going to be told no a lot, but how can you say yes to yourself amidst a sea of no's? Like, how can you create a yes out of that? And I think the universe is conspiring. The creator, God, whomever you decide um, is your higher power, is conspiring to give you, to prepare you for all the blessings that you deserve and need. Are you are you open to that? Are you are you? But see, all that can't happen unless you put in the work. Oh, that's all right. That, all that can't happen unless you claim it, unless you believe, unless you have that faith. Like. You know, you can't, you got to have all of that stuff. It can't, yep. it's not going to work on its own. That's right. I, um, I love that story. I love it in long form and, um, I respect it so much because I, 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 I say this a lot kind of in leadership, but I worry that, um, our generation and I'm, uh, you and I are close to the same age can be just, Wait, you're, you're 27 too. Uh-huh. You got it. Nailed it. I love it. Uh, <laughs> I worry that our generation's a little bit too precious. You know what I mean? Um, too tender, too thin skinned, too unable to um, persevere, um, too fragile with every no and every rejection, just um, so likely to throw our hands up and say, well, I just, it's not meant to be. And they said no, and they must be right. But what's interesting about your story, specifically on the crossover, is the all 22 of those editors that said no to you, they were wrong. They were wrong. Your book is a raging success. Children adore it. It won the highest prize in its category. They were wrong and your instincts were right. And so I don't know why we apply, why we assign such weight to other people's rejections when we know in our heart and we know in our gut um, that we have something special. And I just find a lot of inspiration in your, um, your determination to see that thing through. Thank goodness you did. We'd all be less without having that book among us um, in the hands of our kids. And so I just, I'm like deriving so much inspiration from that story. Hey guys, I wanted to break into the show for a minute to ask you a question. Who around here loves to clean? There's somebody out there who probably does, God bless you, but most of us dread it. But what we do all love is when everything is clean, right? So a while back, I discovered something that makes cleaning more fun, better smelling, and healthier. Grove Collaborative. You've probably already heard about it. They make it easy to discover the very best natural cleaning products to take care of your home and your family, and they make sure you never run out of your favorites and they deliver it right to your door. My love language. Grove Collaborative carries so many great brands like Method, my very favorite, Mrs. Myers, and Burt's Bees. Also some of their own label stuff. They even sell some products in concentrates. Did you know that most of our cleaning products we buy are like 95% water? Well, with Grove, you get this beautiful reusable bottle to use for the products that come in concentrate. Just put a little bit in the bottle, add your own water, and clean. 
What's fun about Grove, too, is that they've got so many great scents. And get this, there is a slew of fall scents available soon, like apple cider, peony blossoms, mum, and crowd favorite, pumpkin. Who doesn't love pumpkin in the fall? So because we are all about telling you the things we love to make life a little easier, and in this case, better smelling, We've partnered up with Grove Collaborative to extend an offer to you, our beloved listeners. You can take advantage of this awesome new customer offer so that everyone listening can try your own box of Grove stuff. This special offer comes with a free Mrs. Meyer gift set that's worth $30. So when you place your order of $20 or more, you get Mrs. Meyer's hand soap, dish soap, multi-surface spray, a kitchen towel, plus free shipping and a VIP trial membership. So to get all this, you've got to go to grove.co slash for the love. So it's not grove.com. It's grove.co slash for the love. Now back to our show. I want to talk about your new book. Um, you've written a new young adult novel. It's coming out October 2nd, right? Um, and it's called Swing. And obviously, you're a smart guy. This is a very, very timely book because it's about learning to raise your voice, which, you know, in this past year, we've seen kids in some cases do extraordinarily better than adults at this. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the kids in Parkland and how important and influential their sort of courageous voices have been in our culture. So can you talk a little bit about Swing and why you decided to write it? Swing is probably the most challenging book I've ever written. Hmm. Um, I wrote I wrote it with a writing partner. Um, her name is Mary Rand Hess. Mm. And we wrote another novel together called Solo, which was about rock and roll music and sort of uh, and and relationship between family members and and a little bit of love. And Swing is about baseball. It's about jazz music, which I've been in love with mm. most of my life. And it's about social justice. So it's about some two boys, Walt and Noah, who are trying to find cool. Like they just they're uncool. Um, um, and they want to be mm. cool. They want the girls to like them. Um, they want to be popular, but they aren't. And so they feel like baseball, um, and perhaps jazz music can help them get there. Mm. Um, and so the book is about their sort of journey to finding cool. Um, and there's a twist that mm-hmm. happens. There's a twist that happens, um, simultaneously while they're searching for cool and love, there are American flags popping up all around town and people are wondering, is it patriotism or is it terrorism? And so that sort of gets resolved. Um, The cool, the love um, gets resolved and we sort of find out what it means to when the world is not so beautiful. Yeah, um, it's good. what, what, What can we do as young people to, to sort of help make it a better place. I appreciate that you treat your young readers with respect, um, that you are acknowledging their capacity to handle really complicated topics like that and to really um, consider it with intelligence. And I just, I, I, I'm grateful that you don't just, um, didn't write condescendingly 
that you said this is important. This is happening. Right. This is in your peer group. This is happening in your schools. Um, this is what you're seeing. This is what you're feeling. Um, and I think that's why you're so popular. Um, I think you treat your young readers with a lot of admiration um, by giving them things they're not used to. Poetry, for example, about basketball. I mean, who told you you could do that? You just made, <laughs> you made up a genre. Right. You, you just did it. Um, and uh, you must listen a lot to your readers. Do you, I mean, you obviously hear from them often, don't you? Do they write you? Do they speak to you? Are you, is this where your ideas come from? Are you sort of crowdsourcing them from your, your fans? Um, not intentionally, but I think that's exactly what is happening inadvertently. Um, I probably visited 150 schools last year. Hmm. Wow. Gosh. So I'm interacting with thousands of kids every week and I'm not just going to speak to them or speak at them. I'm having these, you know, these interactive moments of inspiration and engagement and empowerment and not just from me to them, but from them to me. Hmm. And I love it. Like, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, I'm not a huge fan of the airports and the travel and getting to these places. But once I get there, it's like church. Yeah. It's it's like church and we're all fellowshipping and we're all coming together and we're all sort of, you know, um, surrounded by the joy and again, the power and the beauty and the transformation that takes place when when the right words are in the right order the mm. power of storytelling to to connect us and i feel connected to these kids in a mm. really profound way and it's and and it's a blast it uh, it is and i think kids are smarter than they get credit for and i think they see more than we think they see and so what a wonderful resource for you to really have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in their heads and in their hearts and um Poetry seems like it would be a, a really approachable place for kids to get into reading, but sometimes it doesn't appear that way. Like I think a lot of kids hear poetry and they think it's too complicated or it's too highbrow um, or it, it's going to, they're going to struggle sort of with the meaning. So along with writing all these books for kids um, and teens, you have several reading initiatives that I love. And so you've obviously given this a lot of thought. So, um, can you talk about those a little bit and, and then how do you think we should lay the groundwork to draw our kids into reading in general and even poetry specifically? Well, I think that the reason that kids feel intimidated by poetry or don't really feel, uh, enticed by it is because we don't Hmm. as teach as their teachers and their parents, we have a, a relationship with poetry that is less than favorable. We think it's stayed and incomprehensible and boring and we're afraid of it. So how can we, how can we expect our kids not to be if we are? So I think, you know, part of this is we have to sort of, you know, find our way back to an appreciation of the rhythm and the rhyme that we loved, that we, that we love growing up as children, you know, the Dr. Seuss, Shel Silverstein. Yep. You know, we went from Shel Silverstein to Shakespeare and expected everybody to s- still feel the same excitement. It can't happen. There That's needs a great to be a, point. Needs, needs to be a bridge to get us over. That is a great point. You know, and so I've tried to create some initiatives and projects and programs and write books that sort of serve as that bridge mm. to keep a parents, you know, kids to keep to, to show us that we do actually love poetry. 
Um, I started yeah. this program called Book in a Day, where I taught um, elementary, middle, and high school kids how to write and publish a book of poetry in one day. And we did it in 76 schools. We created 4,500 student authors. And the kids, you know, they wrote, they designed the cover, they proofread the text, you know, they published a book of poems. And ultimately, they felt like they were writers. They felt like they were now um, understood the, the importance of reading because they wanted people to read their books. But more importantly, they felt like they had a voice and they could accomplish you know, they had the confidence and the tools to accomplish what they will. Um, I think poetry is the great equalizer. I think we've got to find our way back to it. And so for most people, especially adults and parents and teachers, I say, you know, find that poem that's going to excite and engage you. You know, find find your way back to a passion um, of poetry that you can then convey to your kids and your students. And I think a great way to do that is through love poems. Um, we all, mm-hmm. again, we all have some mm-hmm. facet aspect of love in our life. Yeah. Um, I wrote my girlfriend a poem every day for a year. <laughs> and I uh, read that. You read that? I wrote yep. a poem every day for a year. Um, I am not a painter. Browns and blues, we get along, but we are not close. I am no Van Gogh, but give me plain paper, a dull pencil, and I will hijack your curves. Take your soul hostage. Paint a portrait so colorful and delicate, you just may have to cut off my ear. And and she married me. Of course she did. That's how you turn a girlfriend into a wife. Just but, like that. And that's how you turn um, a not-so-avid reader into a reader. It's good. Through poetry. That's so good. Um, this is a really interesting time for a lot of us who are raising young readers. Uh, just it's their generation is different than we were. You know, there's so much information coming at our kids in any given day. Um, so thoughts and ideas and sort of curated storylines have been shortened from book length to 140 characters coming at them like a tsunami. And so I'm just curious your opinion here, like in this very tech fueled information age that's truncated and shortened and reduced and sensationalized and constant, how do we, how do you think we help our kids become effective readers and thinkers? Like how do we balance technology use, which is obviously not all bad. There's so much good inside of it. Um, but also ensure that our kids actually have an attention span left by the time they're they're 25. What do you think? How do we do this as parents? Um, well, here's how I do it. I try to read with my kid. We read Harry Potter together. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to take her to meet authors who are going to excite, excite her and get her, you know, wow, that was cool. I want, I want to read that author's books. So I try to have those experiences. Um, again, I think you just, you got to find those, those opportunities. You know, a haiku is three lines and 17 mm-hmm. syllables. You know, a, a kid can finish a haiku. Um, I was in a high school in, in Niska Unit, New York, and there were a bunch of 17 and 18 year olds in, in, in the audience, like eight, 800 of them. And mm. the um, the department chair was like, our kids aren't really readers of poetry. You know, they aren't really, you know, they're more into social media. So don't expect a whole lot. And my thing, wow. was, my thing was like, yeah, OK, no problem. So I stand up in front of all these 800 kids and I immediately tell them, okay, guys, I'm going to begin this presentation by sharing a haiku 
about, and then I asked one of the kids' names, and he tells me his name is Joe. And I say, this is a haiku, that, a series of haiku that Joe's girlfriend wrote for him. <laughs> and they're like, oh, what's this? So then I share the haiku. Um, it is not that I don't love you, she says. Indeed, I do. I want to kiss you, to lasso your lips, tame them, rein them into my stable. But first, Joe, you must agree to commit to a breath mint. <laughs> And they just start laughing, even Joe's laughing. And for the next hour, they are like enraptured and captivated. Of course. They're hanging on every word. And the, they're, after the event, they're, the kids are coming up to buy copies of my love poems, especially yep. the boys. And they're walking out of the auditorium right past the department chair. And he's, he's flummoxed. And I'm like, it doesn't take a whole lot. Let's try to figure out how to, you know, share accessible, relatable, interesting um verse with young people it it it's it has never failed me um, in my personal and professional life and i think it can be the bridge that allow our children to begin to appreciate literature and language in a really profound way that's so great so you have your own publishing imprint which is called versify which is a pretty big deal i mean Having your own imprint is no small thing. Um, so congratulations. Could you tell us about how Versify came about and what kind of books you want to publish? What kind, what, um, what you want readers of Versify books to learn or to come away with when they finish? Thank you. I mean, it's Versify is, it's a lifelong dream. I mean, back in the nineties, I had my own publishing company. It was a small press and, and we did it for 10 years, but it wasn't that, it wasn't sustainable. We weren't able to make enough money to stay afloat. Yeah. And I always said, man, if I ever get the opportunity, I would love to get back into publishing. And that was back in 2005. And then after the success of the crossover and booked and some of the other projects and, and just my work out in the literacy world, my publisher, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, approached me about starting my own imprint. And there had been a few other imprints that had been started by authors and their names were attached to it. Derek mm -hmm. Jeter, um, Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, but it was really, they were, it was just in name. And I told my editor, Margaret, I said, well, I'd love to do this. I have a background in publishing, but I, I'm going to want it to be more than a name. I'm going to mm -hmm. want to curate a list. I'm going to yeah. want to discover authors. I want to help other authors like me, you know, to have that opportunity to get their crossover published. Um, so I don't just want to rely on un on agented work. I want to find mm, writers from the slush pile. I want to get out, yep. travel around and meet writers who are trying to find their place. And, and, and so, so they, they, they loved it. And mm. we worked on it for about a year and, and next year, April 2nd, the first list will publish, we'll, we'll publish four to seven books a year. Um, yeah, generally, nice. it'll be children's literature, picture books, middle grade novels, young adult novels, nonfiction. We'll probably do a little bit of adult um, if we find like that book that that represents our mission, our vision. And, and when I think about what our mission is, I think probably, Jen, it's I want to publish good books. Hmm. Um, I feel like for so long, publishing has been a dinner party and you go to the party and there's been you know, the same four or five people at the table. That's right. Yeah. And there are two or three seats that are empty. And I just want to invite some more people to the party. 
That's so great. And I want to have a great dinner party and I want books that are going to electrify and edify and engage mm-hmm. and, and help kids imagine a better world, whatever that means. I want to publish good books. I, I want to publish it. Jen Hatmaker's first children's book. Yes. That's my goal. <laughs> I said it here, folks. You heard it. You heard it on the For the Love podcast, everybody. <laughs> um, I just think that's so fabulous. Is it too soon for you to tell us any of the books coming down the pike? The covers for our new books are being revealed like as we speak. Oh, exciting. So so you'll be able to, you can see the covers we'll now. Link. Yeah, we'll um, link up to that. But yeah, the books, the first four books that are coming out, one is a picture book called The Undefeated, which is a poem I wrote for ESPN about mm. sort of the the resilience, the grit of of America through the eyes of Black Americans. Oh, I can't um, wait to see that. And it's illustrated by Kadir Nelson. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a, a picture book called Vamos, Let's Go to Market. Um, by Raul III, who's an amazing illustrator and, and author. And it's about sort of the everyday occurrences at the market in a Latino community. Right. Um, there is a novel in verse, a young adult novel in verse by Kip Wilson, which is about um, German teenagers who started a resistance called the White Rose to Hitler's uh, Nazi regime. Oh, wow. Um, and it really resonates in this time with, with young mm-hmm. people resisting and standing yeah. up for what matters. And then we have a fantasy novel in this sort of tradition of the Phantom Tollbooth. Um, it's written by Lamar Giles. It's called The Last, Last Day of Summer. And wouldn't every kid want to be able to freeze the last day of summer? Mm. So, so yeah. yeah, yeah. So those awesome. are our first four books. We're really excited about it. Um, and they, they, they all come out on April the 2nd. Fabulous. Oh, I'm excited for you. All right. We're going to wrap this up. These what, are. I know. <laughs> no, don't do it, Timmy. That's how I feel. So, listen, these are like kind of three just quick questions we're asking everybody in the book series um, for the podcast. So, here's the first one What's the first book that you ever read that you distinctly remember having like a like boom impact on you? The Greatest, the Autobiography of Muhammad Ali. You did say that. How old were you when you read that? 11 or 12. Yep. Yep. What's one book in your life that you have read over and over again? Are you a rereader? I've realized now where sometimes yeah. readers are in two different camps. Not, probably. not I'm a rereader. Yeah, I am. Um, probably the poetry of Nikki Giovanni. Uh, the poetry of Pablo Neruda, his love poems. I can read those over and over again. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd probably say those two. Okay. I'll link those up on my transcript page so people can look those up too. So finally, this is a twist on a question that we ask every guest on this show. Um, which, which book is saving your life right now? Which book is saving my life right now? Wow, like, that's a glory. Cr- this world is better because this book is in it. Wow, that's a great question. There's a picture book that Jacqueline Woodson wrote. It's called The Day You Begin. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah, and that book yes. is just really powerful. It's it's really beautiful. Um I, I would I would say kids, adults, everybody should read that book. And it's it's a picture book. Yep. That yep. that's yeah, I think that may be it. I think that's a great answer. I literally came across that book yesterday and just thought, oh, I'm happy that exists. So Kwame, 
I'm so happy to have met you on this little podcast. Can you tell everybody um, where to find you and um, all that good stuff? Yeah, um, you can find me at KwameAlexander.com. You can find me on social media at Kwame Alexander. And I host a, a weekly uh, uh, show on Facebook Live and YouTube. It's called Bookish. And it's about all the stuff happening in kids' books. And we got music. And it's really sort of like uh, if you could imagine Jimmy Fallon uh, for kids. That's good. It's, That's uh, a good description. Yeah, so, so it's called Bookish with Kwame Alexander. And uh, yeah, that's where I am. That's awesome. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for just bringing your very immense gifts to bear on the world and for teaching our kids to love poetry and words and language and writing. And I'm so grateful for what you do. And I'm so happy to have met you. So now we're friends. Like that's how this works. You're my friend now. I don't know if you knew that was part of the deal, <laughs> but that's that's part of the bargaining chip here. Jen, kudos, <laughs> kudos to you for helping folks renovate their lives. That's nice. Thank you. Have a great week. You too. He's so great, right? What a great guy. What an amazing author. I just, I love what he is putting out into the world. So you guys, if Kwame is new to you, if you don't already have his books on your shelves for your kids, I'm going to have all this linked over on my website, jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab. We'll have all his stuff over there. Um, and I really want you to look at his book, not just hear it because he writes the words on the page with really interesting literary like moves, um, like where the words swoop down the page and he uses bolds and italics and, and you can, you can feel what he is saying, even just by looking at it before you even read it. And so he really, really is such a gifted, gifted writer. So, um, thank you for joining us on this really fun series. Um, we are totally loving for the love of books. So much more to come. I cannot wait. <laughs> I just cannot wait. So appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for subscribing and listening. You guys, you have just pushed this little podcast so far. It's gone over 8 million downloads this week and you just are fabulous listeners who come in every single week and you're loyal and you're telling your friends about it. And we are so grateful and when I say we, I mean my producer, Laura, and her team, and my assistant and partner, Amanda. And together, we do a ton of work to put this in your hands. And so thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Absolutely subscribe if you haven't already. Thank you for reviewing and rating it. That is so good for podcasts. Anyway, you guys, um, always happy to be here with you. Always happy to be your little host. And come back next week because we have more amazing guests for you that you're going to love in this series for the love of books. Have a great one, you guys. So my good friend, Jessica Honiger, founder of socially conscious fashion brand Noonday Collection, was just on our podcast talking about her very first book, Imperfect Courage, and we're celebrating the release of this book. So if you care about making a difference in the world, you're an entrepreneur, you love fashion, or you're a builder and a dreamer, Imperfect Courage is fuel for all of that all of those reasons. So you can order it right now on amazon.com and anywhere books are sold. You'll be so glad you did. Calling all crafters. So whether you paint, knit, crochet, or make wreaths, Jennifer Allwood can show you how to turn your creative hobby into money. 
Jennifer has this online course called The Creator's Inner Circle, and she is reserving spots in September just for you, my For the Love listeners. So if you want to make some extra cash doing what you already love, visit jenniferallwood.com slash jenhatmaker. That's jennifer, A-L-L-W-O-O-D.com slash jenhatmaker. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.